Hello and welcome to Eisner Amper's podcast series, where we try to dig a little deeper on accounting and finance issues facing business professionals and their clients. Today, we're taking a few minutes to update you on the Brexit situation. I'm your host, Dave Plasco, and with us to share his expertise is Robert Mursky, head of Eisner Amper's London office and leader of the firm's asset management group. Robert, welcome and thanks for being here. Hey, Dave. Uh, thanks for Thanks for having me. So I know we have a, a vote coming up soon here in, in December on the 12th, I believe. Where, where are we at in the process for now with Brexit? Um, so th- there have been some pretty significant changes to, uh, to the Brexit deal since we, since we last spoke, Dave. Um, and, and really importantly within the political arena, as, as I'm sure you know, former Prime Minister Theresa May stepped down on the 24th of May this year. And, and uh, Boris Johnson... Who, uh, who was an MP and, and is also the former mayor of London, became prime minister on the 24th of July. Um, one of Prime Minister Johnson's campaign lines was to, to get Brexit done. He continues to use that today. And, and, um, and so they, they were moving toward the Brexit drop dead date of the 31st of October, but it came and went. Uh, and, and we now have an extended deadline of the 31st of January, 2020. Um, quite a bit's changed though, along, uh, along with the, the Brexit deadline. Um, the, the Prime Minister's initial plan was to get a deal through Parliament with the threat of uh, no deal unless Parliament agreed with the plan. But in, in early September, Parliament intervened and passed legislation called the Ben Act, which, which legally obliged him to, to request an extension if the deal wasn't agreed. Uh, several members of his own party sided against him. They were expelled for that vote. Um, the Prime Minister's next move then was to request that the Queen prorogue Parliament for five weeks. Um, prorogation, it's, it's parliamentary speak for a recess or a suspension of Parliament. And, and so no MPs were going to sit and, and debate the, uh, the, the Brexit deal. Um, and, and really, prorogation, it's, it's a fairly common occurrence in the UK parliamentary calendar, but the duration was significantly longer. Um, the, the Prime Minister's government was taken to court over this, and the Supreme Court in the UK declared that it was unlawful. Um, and, and on the 24th of September, the MPs resumed business. So, so following the reconstitution of Parliament and, and with further negotiations with, uh, with the EU and, and with members of Parliament, um, on the 22nd, uh, a deal was approved by Parliament in principle. So while this was a huge step forward for the UK, um, Parliament rejected the timeline for the deal because they didn't want the, everything to be pushed forward on the 31st. Um, and they uh, really forced the Prime Minister's hand to delay to the 31st of January 2020 uh, the, the, the Brexit deadline. So having been frustrated uh, in his attempts to sort of get the deal through, the Prime Minister called for a general election, which is where we are now. And that was agreed by all the parties and for December the 12th, so next week. Uh, and the hope, uh, and the Prime Minister is, is hoping he's going to secure a majority and really a mandate to negotiate from a position of strength on the final terms of Brexit with the EU. Okay. And what does the new bill look like? Um, so in, in the first instance, the UK would leave the customs union, which would mean they could make their own trade deals with other countries. Uh, Northern Ireland, though, which was one of the sticking points, would remain in the UK customs territory, but logistically still part of the EU customs union, which, which would mean no customs checks at the borders. Um, one of the biggest bones of contention, though, was, was, uh, was an alternative to the, to the controversial backstop. That was the insurance policy 
that meant the UK had to stay in the EU because of the, the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland if a future trade deal couldn't be agreed. So, so the, the alternative idea is essentially to imagine having a border in the Irish Sea, um, meaning Northern Ireland would be treated differently to mainland Britain. Um, and so in addition to this, the Northern Ireland Assembly, known as Stormont, would have, would have, had the, uh, would have the right to vote on this alternative backstop every four years. Um, so the, the next big issue then to think about, assuming we've got the backstop, we've got Northern Ireland dealt with, we've got this customs union dealt with, it, it's the transition period. So the transition period is supposed to end December 20, uh, 2020. The transition, the transition period is the period of time when the withdrawal of agreement's been signed and before the UK actually leaves. It, it, it really, in essence, creates a standstill where current EU laws and trade deals remain in place between the EU and the UK, but the UK would no longer really have a say in their operation. But what it does is it really allows for an orderly exit from, for, for the UK without a drop-dead date. Um, where other kinds of agreements could be put, put in place to replace the EU rules um, that the UK is currently part of. Um, but what that means is by uh, December next year, we've got another drop-dead date, even assuming we've got this January 31 um, you know, Brexit happening. Okay. And what's coming up? So, uh, as I mentioned before, what's coming up is the, the December 12th general election in the UK. So all 650 members of parliament are up for re-election. Um, in the UK, elections are usually held every five years under the Fixed Terms Parliament Act, and the UK really wasn't technically due to have one again until 2022. But the Prime Minister, again, put forward the motion in Parliament for an early election, and, um, and Labour was kind of forced to agree to it, um, although their outcome isn't, isn't quite as uh, assured as, as the Conservative parties might be. So, Interestingly, in this election, the current sentiment is that people have a stronger commitment to either the leave or remain camps than they necessarily do to their own parties. And that's going to be a very strong influence on this upcoming election. Okay. And what will those election results mean? Well, I mean, in, in the first instance, it means we could have a new prime minister 49 days before the Brexit deadline. Um, and that makes things pretty exciting. That said... The Conservatives or the Tories are, are currently leading the polls and have been through, throughout the election campaign. Um, if they win the election by majority, they've promised they're going to focus on leaving the EU uh, with the, the January 31 deadline. Um, polling, though, is incredibly difficult in the UK, particularly given the emotive nature of the Brexit issues. Um, the issue, though, for the Labour Party here is that Jeremy Corbyn is is a relatively unpopular leader, according to the polls. Uh, he's been called out in recent days for things, you know, from, from ties to terrorist groups to systemic anti-Semitism in the party. So um, so there's a lot going on there. The, the Liberal Democrats, the Lib Dems, are really the third party in the UK elections, and, and, and they may throw a monkey wrench into the mix, which could take away key constituencies from both parties. And then finally, Scotland as a country which voted to remain in the EU um, after electing its MPs, typically the, the SNP or the Scottish National Party, they may end up being a swing minority party to give any minority government, assuming that uh, there's, a, there's a hung parliament coalition part, partner. So, uh, and, and in the event Labour actually win, they've said they're going to be renegotiating the Brexit deal uh, and they're going to put it to a public vote 
So contrary to the conservatives, though, the, the labor is sort of remaining neutral uh, in terms of their stance. So if you were going to ask me to predict what was happening, my guess is, which you haven't asked me, and, and by the way, I hope, I hope we never get asked this question again and, and review this, so just you know, bear with me. But if I, if I were to guess here, I, I would expect the Tories to win the election. The questions, uh, you know, whether or not they win uh, with a majority uh, or whether or not we have a hung parliament and there needs to be a, a coalition government put in place. Um, certainly the pound hitting a seven-month high versus the dollar yesterday is, is kind of an indication that the markets at least believe that the conservatives will win a majority in parliament. Um, and with Boris Johnson prom promising a, a meaningful vote on the Brexit deal before Christmas, if he wins a majority, quite a lot's going to happen over the next few weeks. Okay. So let's let's bring it back to what, you know, what you're an expert at and what Eisner Amper is an expert at. What should asset managers be considering both in the U.S. and the U.K.? Um, so, so let me start by saying that I believe the UK will always be a, a major financial center, um, you know, in the world, and, and and I believe that the impact of Brexit on that will be less bad than originally feared, and and, and in fact, the, the countries within the EU, ex UK, are facing a much tougher tougher future in this space if the UK eventually leaves. Um, so we're seeing. Fallout, though, we are seeing some fallout throughout the industry. And, you know, you look at the suspension of redemptions, for example, from one of the, the UK's largest property funds yesterday. Um, there's concern around other funds, property funds typically tied to the UK property market, um, given the reduction in property values seen since, since the Brexit vote. We've seen middle and back office staff relocating to continental Europe in anticipation of Brexit, but we've seen few high-profile moves of front office staff moving, and those have predominantly remained in London. And, and so the, the other thing you need to think about here in terms of regulation is, is the continuation of delegation rights um, after, uh, after Brexit. Th those really have been protected, and that enables investment groups to continue to manage funds in Europe from London. Um, there's a question as to what will happen to passporting, which is what asset managers rely on to sell their funds across the EU. Uh, and, and the agreement governing the UK's withdrawal from the EU have, has very little detail on that point. So all of that said, let, let's, let's just talk in, in, in a bit more detail about what fund managers without direct investment exposure anyway in the UK need to be considering. So, so if we take, take them as groups and we look at US fund managers in the first instance that are looking to raise money in Europe, um, they're going to be, be continue to be considered third country funds, uh, third country fund managers, um, and uh, and they're going to need to think about really a, a few different ways of of continuing to to interact uh, with with Europe, and that's through uh, potentially the establishment of an EU based fund uh, or the national private placement regimes, sometimes called NPPR. Um, my advice to any fund manager looking uh, in the U.S. looking to raise money in the EU is to take stock of where your fundraising activity is likely to take place. Where, where's the low-hanging fruit? If, if that's the U.K., Switzerland, the Netherlands, Scandinavia, really the implications of Brexit for you are negligible at this point. In or out, you can still avail yourself of, of the national private placement regimes or, or the local Swiss rules to raise money. Um, if your fundraising extends to France, to Germany, to Southern Europe, the question becomes much trickier. And there's a tipping point at which you may need to consider alternative routes to market, such as the, um, 
so-called tied agent model, or depending on the size of, uh, of the fund manager and, 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 um, and funds, establishment of full European operations with appropriate substance. What I see from most U.S. fund managers, save for the very, very large uh, institutional managers, is kind of a wait-and-see approach with, um, with sort of a, a, a side of, of national private placement regime and, and use of what's called reverse solicitation, um, which is really when uh, an investor calls you, you had nothing to do with it, and they say, hi, I'd like to invest in your fund. Um, just a note that, that the idea of reverse solicitation and the use of reverse solicitation isn't really a strategy, and, and it is potentially risky. There have been some, some rules in the EU uh, promulgated recently, so there's some changes happening there that, that, that will have a big impact on reverse solicitation. So that's the U.S. If we look at U.K.-based fund managers, the question post-Brexit is, is going to be substantially similar to that of U.S.-based managers. The, the difference here is that the U.K. might actually be in a slightly more advantageous position, given that its rules around fund management have been modeled on or even developed sort of peri passu with, um, with, the, with the EU rules. Um, so that should, barring some kind of political spitefulness on behalf of the EU, put the UK-based fund managers in at least the position of a US-based fund manager in terms of access to EU investors. And then finally, for EU-based fund managers, again, barring some political infighting between the UK and the EU post-Brexit, you should be able to continue to access the, the UK through its national product placement regime. Um, and so my overall advice here is really just to consider a plan of where you're invest or where, where you're investing, what your investor base looks like, and what your expected future relationship with, with Europe X UK will be on the back of that. I don't believe this is a sky is falling scenario. I believe that a carefully considered and, and a nuanced approach to, to, to the individual markets that you're looking at should allow for a smooth transition for, for global managers in a post-Brexit world. Okay, so so the saga continues, and I'm sure that you and I will talk again on this topic uh, as it's a developing story. Uh, so I thank you, Robert, for your advice and your insight. Thanks, Dave. And thank you for listening to the Eisner Amper podcast series. Visit EisnerAmper.com for more information on this and a host of other topics. And join us for our next Eyes Ramper podcast when we get down to business.